There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursion? Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. It was 2008. Ladies and gentlemen, the governor of Alaska and the next vice president of the United States, Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin burst onto the national scene 10 years ago, and nobody had seen anything quite like her. Thank you. Thank you. Her coming out party was in St. Paul, Minnesota at the Republican National Convention. I will be honored to accept your nomination for Vice President of the United States. One of the great convention speeches that anybody will ever deliver. I accept the call to help our nominee for president to serve and defend America. Her speech was better than John McCain's. Her speech was the best speech of the convention. That in small towns, we don't quite know what to make of a candidate who lavishes praise on working people when they're listening and then talks about how bitterly they cling to their religion and guns when those people aren't listening. I was so happy for her. She nailed it. I ask you to join our cause and help America elect a great man as the next president of the United States. After the party was over, it was time for Palin to hit the campaign trail and meet the press. Do you consider yourself a feminist? I do. A feminist who uh, believes in uh, equal rights, and I believe that uh, women certainly This month marks 10 years since my interview with Sarah Palin. Actually, interviews plural. We had a total of four separate conversations. If it doesn't pass, what is the alternative? The, 
the as I say, inaction is not an option. We have got to shore up our economy. This is crisis moment for America, really the rest of the world also, looking to see what the impacts will be if America were to choose not to shore up what has happened on Wall Street because of the the ultimate adverse effects on Main Street and then how that affects this globalization that we're a part of in our world. So the rest of the world really is. I've done thousands of interviews during the course of my career, but this one perhaps had the greatest impact. It was everywhere, all over the Internet and all over cable news. For a long time. That is one of the most pathetic pieces of tape I have ever seen for someone aspiring to one of the highest offices in this country. Palin is clearly out of her league. And she's become, as you noted, an object of ridicule uh, in part because of that Katie Couric interview, which was a real turning point in her campaign. The interviews were even spoofed on SNL. Amy Poehler did her best Katie Couric and famously Tina Fey channeled Sarah Palin. Katie, I'd like to use one of my lifelines. <laughs> I'm sorry, I want to phone a friend. Sarah Palin was mocked because of what she didn't know. But maybe, despite her lack of policy detail, she actually knew more about the American electorate than we realized. What if Sarah Palin was a sign of things to come? We tend to prefer candidates who don't talk about us one way in Scranton and another way in San Francisco. This week and next week, in a two-part special, we're looking back at the rise and fall of one of the most captivating candidates in recent memory. We'll talk about the interview that was literally heard around the world and the impact it had on the 2008 election. We'll also take a look at the American political scene today. Are you ready to make America great again? And we'll consider the path Sarah Palin may have paved for the current president of the United States. God bless the United States of America and our next president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. Heads are spinning. Media heads are spinning. This is going to be so much fun. So, Katie, back in 2008, as you know, I worked with you at CBS as your political producer, and we spent a lot of time getting ready for those interviews. And since then, we've actually spent even more time thinking and talking to people about those conversations. And, Brian, we should mention that one person we didn't talk to for this podcast is Governor Palin herself. But not for lack of trying. We did reach out, and we asked her if she'd like to participate, but we still haven't gotten a response. In order to understand Sarah Palin, you first need to understand the McCain campaign. Steve's here. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Hi, Garrett. I'm Steve. Nice to meet you. We sat down with Steve Schmidt, a Republican strategist who had worked on the campaigns of George W. Bush and Arnold Schwarzenegger. I've never talked about any of this stuff in, like, yeah. first person. Great. So Steve first got involved in the McCain campaign back in 2007, when it looked like the Arizona senator wasn't even going to be a serious contender for his party's presidential nomination. His campaign had collapsed in the summer of 2007, and he had gone from frontrunner to last place, completely broke. The National Press Corps was assembled in 
Manchester waiting for him to arrive. He came in on a Southwest Airlines flight in the back in a middle seat. You know, when are you getting out of the race? And um, he called me, you know, and I helped lead, you know, a comeback that it was a big comeback in the history of presidential nominations from last to first, but it was just completely overshadowed by the historic nature of the Hillary and the Obama race. The day that McCain becomes the nominee of the party, essentially, there's 35 people working for the campaign. We're $9 million in debt. And the four senior people, we're all volunteers. I was a volunteer all the way through. By contrast, day that Obama becomes the nominee, there's 2,000 people working on the campaign. There's hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank. It was like fighting the Death Star. And you know, by the time we get to the summer of 08, when I take over day-to-day responsibilities for the campaign, Barack Obama is in Berlin um, speaking to hundreds of thousands of screaming Germans in the Stubenplatz or wherever he is. Let me thank Chancellor Merkel and thank you to the people of Germany for this extraordinary welcome. Thank you. I come to Berlin. You know, we're watching this on TV on a day where McCain has the Straight Talk Express parked outside of literally Schmidt's Sausage House. Schmidt's Sausage House. No relation to Steve Schmidt, who is uh, part of our campaign, as we know. Somewhere in Ohio, and there's six old ladies standing out there, right? <laughs> and you're and, like, and, oh, and, boy. And, and they're like, you're in charge. <laughs> you're to be in charge now. And so we came back over that summer, really from a deficit of 14, 15 points. And we were, by the time the Democratic Convention gets ready to go, we're in an even race. They came back in part by highlighting Obama's lack of experience. He's the biggest celebrity in the world. But is he ready to lead? I'm John McCain, and I approve this message. Steve Schmidt was feeling pretty good about the gains the McCain campaign had made over the summer, but he still knew the chances of winning were slim. It was definitely a change election. Uh, There's been three times in the last, you know, at that point, 108 years where the incumbent president's party had gotten a third term. So we knew we were in difficult circumstances and we were going to have to do something big and to throw the ball. So remember that in 2008, you have a flagging economy, a disastrous war in Iraq, and in George W. Bush, a very unpopular incumbent Republican president. And here comes Barack Obama, who had defeated Hillary Clinton in the Democratic primary in a huge upset. He was young. He gave these soaring speeches. His campaign's mantra of hope and change was electrifying voters. And he presented America with the legitimate possibility— of electing the first African-American president ever. So yeah, Katie, I think it's safe to say that McCain's team was feeling the pressure. They said, we're not going to win. We're just, we're going to go to the bottom of the, of the drink, so to speak, here really fast. No excitement, no sizzle. Um, and I said, our, our choices suck. This process has been bad. We don't have a viable choice now to do what we need to do politically. And I said... Um, to my everlasting regret, and these words slow down in my mind to, to this day, and I said, what about Sarah Palin? 
I said, I don't know much about her other than she's the most popular governor in the country. She's got an 86% approval rating. She's gone after the oil companies. She's feuding with all these corrupt Alaska politicians, including the senators that McCain hates their guts. I said, we should check her out. And the rest is history. One of Steve Schmidt's closest colleagues during that campaign was Nicole Wallace. They'd worked together in California politics and for George W. Bush. It was Wallace who was assigned to help Sarah Palin prepare for the major moments of the campaign. How has it been 10 years? I'm scarred as though it was yesterday. Well, let's talk about how you got those scars in the first place. Tell us a little bit about the first day you met Sarah Palin. What were your initial impressions? So I didn't know who Senator McCain had selected. And I tried to squeeze in a root canal, which is the kind of idiocy you engage in on presidential campaigns, in between the two conventions. So I had raced home to New York to have a root canal. And they called and they said, you have to be there for VP announce. And um, and I threw a fit. And I was on Vicodin and antibiotics and out of my mind. And I and I take a flight and we drive to Middletown, Middletown. And I pulled up in front of it and I said, there is no way Steve Schmidt is staying here. This place is such a dumb. <laughs> we get out and... And Steve and Salter outside, and Salter's smoking like two cigarettes with one hand. And I'm like, oh, my God, what have we done? And they oh, they throw open the door, and I'm, I'm, I'm three sheets to the wind on Vicodin, and I stare at her, and, I, and I think, all I think of is, who is this? You know, she's beautiful, but who is this? And, um, and Steve said, Nicole, meet the next vice president of the United States, Sarah Palin from the great state of Alaska. And I smiled, and I said, nice to meet you. Congratulations. She had on a black fleece and a black miniskirt, and she was just stunning and charming and charismatic. And I talked to her for a minute, and then I said, excuse me. And I walked out, and Steve followed me out, and he said, what do, what do you think? And I said, oh, I, she's great. She seems great. And, um, and he said, there's a couple things. It's, gonna, it's, it's not going to be smooth. And I said, why? He said, well, you know, the daughter's pregnant. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah okay. And he said, she's 16. I said, okay. And then he, and he said, you know, he, he gave me a couple other red flags. And I said, well, yeah, I'm sure everything will work out. And and she was, you know, she was a surprise to me as she was a surprise to the country. A surprise to Wallace because she knew who McCain's first choice for vice president actually was. The idea was that McCain was going to go out and, and he was going to say, Barack Obama is a good man. And I think he's going to be president of the United States someday. But not yet. He He's not ready. And we have some serious problems in this country. And then say, I'm 72 years old. I've spent every hour of my adult life in, in service to the country. And if the American people so honor me with it, I, I have one last mission. For that mission, I've asked a great American, a great member of the Democratic Party to stand with me, Senator Joe Lieberman. I'm going to serve one term only. And we thought we had a chance with that. How close did you come we to came, making we that announcement? Extreme, we came extremely close. You might recall Joe Lieberman was besties with John McCain. And along with Senator Lindsey Graham, they were called the Three Amigos. Graham was so excited about the Lieberman idea, he just couldn't keep it to himself. So what happened was Lindsey Graham 
um, floated this idea out at a meeting somewhere in South Carolina with a lot of hardcore conservatives. And, you know, the answer was predictable. And literally, within hours, you know, President Bush had called, Rove had called, um, you know, Rush Limbaugh had called, Hannity. And so, you know, we said, can't do it. So they to just, be clear, but for Lindsey Graham's leak, the ticket would have been McCain and Lieberman. 100%. There would have been unhappiness. There may have been controlled rioting, but I think we would have gotten it through. So the base of the party was having none of Joe Lieberman, but John McCain was still ready to do something big and bold. Was this a real Hail Mary? Yeah, for sure. He he felt like there was this little sliver of the electorate that might be available um, uh, people that, that that had been really hungry for a female candidate and Hillary Clinton. And I, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't lay it all on that. I think there were a lot of things about Sarah Palin that appealed to John McCain, the Maverick, but but certainly, you know, putting a woman on the ticket it, it turned out to be important to him when he selected her. Meanwhile, the Obama campaign learned of the choice as they wrapped up their convention. Here's Obama chief strategist David Axelrod. And we got on the plane leaving Denver, the campaign plane, and I got on my uh, BlackBerry, which is what we were carrying at the time, the um, news that uh, Sarah Palin had been chosen as the running mate. And when you got that news, what was your reaction? Uh, I was surprised we had been doing research on, I think, seven potential running mates for John McCain. She was not one of them. I really didn't know that much about her. I will say I uh, went up to the front of the plane and uh, I grabbed uh, Obama and I I told him, uh, you know, he's picked Sarah Palin and um, Biden ran over uh, after a while. And so what's going on? And I told him and he said, who's Sarah Palin? Yeah, I remember uh, Senator Obama saying in his analytical way, Yeah, that's very interesting. Why do you think he did that? And he's running through the reasons in his own head. She's a woman. She's an outsider, represents change. And then he paused and he said, but, you know, he said, this running for president thing, this is tough. He said, you know, I think I'm a reasonably smart guy. And it took me probably six months before I was a halfway decent candidate. Uh, You know, maybe she's the greatest politician since Ronald Reagan, and she could come right out of Alaska and handle this maelstrom. He said, but I'd give this about a month, and then we'll know. And I am especially proud to say in the week we celebrate the anniversary of women's suffrage, a devoted wife and a mother of five. She's got the grit, integrity, good sense and fierce devotion to the common good that is exactly what we need in Washington today. I know that it will demand the best that I have to give, and I promise nothing less. I just thought, I don't know how this is going to work out. And I said so publicly, and I was told quite explicitly, and I won't tell you by who, to shut the hell up. That's longtime Republican pollster and TV pundit Frank Luntz. He actually spends a lot of time out in the country talking to voters. So why do you think she was picked? 
I think she was picked because people like Bill Crystal thought she'd be amazing. Uh, there were a number of stories that were positive about her in the Weekly Standard, that Fox News had talked about her. And there was that uh, pressure from the conservative intelligentsia that they should go with, that John McCain should go with someone who wasn't necessarily from the intelligentsia, that they should go with someone who could really connect, because everyone knew that Barack Obama could connect. This is the time when they started to say among Republicans that they wanted to choose someone who could relate to people in the phone book rather than people who taught at Harvard, Yale, or Princeton. The boys were doing, we were out chopping wood and we were out hunting and fishing and filling our freezer with good wild Alaskan game uh, to feed our family. So it kind of started with But we'd never had it in this kind of package before. We never had someone who actually did pick up a gun and shoot bears. We never had someone who could skin uh, a fish or some of the phrases that she used. Skin I mean, a fish. <laughs> whatever you do, gut a fish, skin a fish. I hate fish, so you got to understand, I would find it morally and physically reprehensible to do anything with a fish, but she could. <laughs> and that was what was different about her. She was real. She was... She was every American, and she was approachable. She was relatable, and that is not typical. She's not, she's not from these parts, and she's not from Washington. But when you get to know her, you're going to be as impressed as I am. Tonight, we are still looking at a major hurricane. There's no change there. The, storm the choice of Sarah Palin was announced on a Friday, and her first big test was the Republican National Convention, which was supposed to start the following Monday. But... It could be up to 12 to 16 feet of storm surge. There was a Category 5 hurricane that was forecast to hit New Orleans on the day that Bush and Cheney were both speaking at the Republican convention with 30% approval levels. It was also the third anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, which served as yet another reminder of the GOP's very unpopular incumbent. I was like, is, you know, what, when is someone going to tell me the Straight Talk Express hit the bubonic plague bus, right, and then wiped out the city of Charleston? I mean, it was just, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't make it up. It, it was the most intensive kind of communications crisis experience I've had in my life. After a rocky start, the convention was back on course. Let's get John McCain and Sarah Palin elected. It was day three. Rudy Giuliani, Mitt Romney, and Mike Huckabee all men John McCain beat in the primary spoke. And then it was Palin's turn. The stakes could not have been higher. And I'm backstage with McCain, who's, boy, he goes, how's she going to do in the speech? I was like, it's, it's going to be okay. Um, not believing that necessarily, <laughs> right? Ladies and gentlemen, the governor of Alaska. I don't know if I've ever told the story, but I walked her onto the stage and she was holding my hand and she had tea and the last thing she did was hand me her tea and then I let go of her hand and she goes do I have to go out there now I said you're gonna go out there now you're gonna be great 
And, um, oh, God, it, like, gives me, like, the same, like, tightness in my chest 10 years later. But um, she went out there, and I was standing so close to her that I was reading the prompter alongside her. And at one point, someone held up a sign and covered the prompter. And I went, oh, fuck. I was like, don't cover the prompter. And Sarah Palin, without missing a beat, that was when she said... I love those hockey moms. You know, they say the difference between a hockey mom and a pit bull? Lipstick. That wasn't in the speech? No. It was a fan held up a sign and covered her prompter for a minute. And I, you know, died a thousand deaths in that moment. That impromptu zinger had convention goers eating out of Palin's hand. Katie, you and I were there, and as you know, the speech was both funny and very moving. No matter how you feel about Sarah Palin today, back then, if you were in that convention hall or watching on TV, she definitely hit it out of the park. Our nominee for president is a true profile in courage, and people like that are hard to come by. He's a man who wore the uniform of his country for 22 years and refused to break faith with those troops in Iraq who now have brought victory within sight. And as the mother of one of those troops, that is exactly the kind of man I want as Commander-in-Chief. I was in the back room with, with John McCain. Here's Steve Schmidt again. And about 30 seconds in, a minute in, He goes, she's good. She's good. She's good. Another minute, it was, man, she's great. Great. You know, by the time, another couple minutes in, he's like, she's, 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 she's fucking great. (laughs) Meanwhile, pollster Frank Luntz was up in the stands. I was in the box with the big donors. And I need to be careful about this because many of them had been married two or even three times. And when they saw her step out, (laughs) <laughs> with a the shortest skirt ever that anyone has worn at a national wasn't convention. wasn't that short. Uh, well, let us just say that they remarked verbally about how short it was. So perception's reality in politics. If that's what they perceive, it's okay. And they said things that today might have gotten them into trouble. But they were mesmerized by her. The convention was mesmerized by her. like a community organizer, except that you have actual responsibilities. Here's a little news flash for those reporters and commentators. I'm not going to Washington to seek their good opinion. I'm going to Washington to serve the people of this great country. To this day, the loudest noise I have ever heard in my life created by human beings was the sound of political ecstasy unleashed by one of the great convention speeches that anybody will ever deliver. Join our cause and help America elect a great man as the next President of the United States. Thank you, and God bless America. Thank you. She electrified that Republican convention. Everyone's high-fiving each other. 
all the guys in that booth thought this is going to be the next Margaret Thatcher, only approachable and relatable. I can't begin to illustrate just how excited the people in the box and all the people around me that this was the choice. Everyone walked out of there thinking this may have been the most important speech that they had ever seen. I remember afterward, I saw John McCain too, and he he said, same thing, you know, she did great. And I said, her prompter went down. He said, it did? And I said, yeah, it was blocked at one point. It went down at one point. He goes, oh, my God, I would have been fucked. I mean, you know, John McCain was so impressed by her. And I think she she had this much-needed infusion of confidence. And when McCain came out after her speech, he actually asked the crowd... Don't you think we made the right choice for the next vice president of the United States? But after the teleprompters were packed up and the hockey mom signs were gathered off the convention floor, that question still remained. Did John McCain make the right choice for vice president? After the break, we'll get into what happened and what we were thinking when I sat down with Sarah Palin. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. 
You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Sarah Palin represents us. Mother, Mayor, Moose Hunter, and Maverick, join me in a welcome for the next Vice President of the United States, Governor Sarah Payne. After her extraordinary performance at the convention, Sarah Palin continued to wow the crowds at rally. Thank you so much, Indiana. Thank you. After rally. Of Florida are ready to send us to D.C. After rally. I feel like I am at home because I see the Carhartts and the steel-toed boots. But it was also time for her to face a tougher audience, journalists. And Katie, as soon as Palin was picked, of course, we started trying to land an interview. Yeah, I was determined to sit down and face Sarah Palin one-on-one, not to, quote, get her, but really to learn more about her and let the American people see who this person really was. McCain's team felt the same way. They thought it was a rite of passage for political candidates. Once again, here's Nicole Wallace. I do remember thinking it was important to do the places with the most reach. And so I remember the two networks that we settled on were ABC and CBS. Let's talk about our relationship. You were a CBS News political analyst, and then you went on leave or left to work for the McCain campaign. So you and I did have a personal relationship. But that really didn't have anything to do with this, right? (laughs) This is one of the funniest things about how Palin sort of internalized it. In any other campaign, it is viewed as sort of an asset. You worked for Katie. You understand the kinds of things she's interested in. The idea that either one of us would betray our professions, that, that, that I would, you know, put my finger on the scale for you and not the ticket, is is such a misunderstanding of how it works. I had an insight into the things that you asked any politician, the things that were of interest to you. I worked for her and tried to do my best to use that insight into what you like to cover and what you were interested in. And I understood that you'd ask things that hadn't been asked before. With big interviews lined up, the campaign started prepping Palin. And almost immediately, Steve Schmidt realized there was a lot of work to do. So I get on the bus and I say, um, you're going to be meeting your foreign policy briefing team later today. I said, I just want to start. I just want to talk to you narratively about the counterinsurgency strategy underway in Iraq. 20 minutes later, I was like, somebody get me a map. And I was like, this is Iraq. This is Afghanistan. These are the people who lived in caves who came here on 9-11 and attacked us. No, they, they weren't from Iraq. That's, we attacked them. Did she think they right? were from Iraq? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Wait, you know, she just, thought the people responsible for 9-11? A hundred percent. So I'm having a conversation, you know, where she's thinking about, you know, it's the queen that the president would deal with on any one of a number of issues. And, you know, I've kind of blocked this out. Um, I, I recall being physically sick. Um, walking off of the bus into a bathroom um, over it, but was was shocked, scared shitless, um, couldn't believe it. First time I talked to her, 
it was obvious that she had not been not just a participant in any of the policy debates that had transpired, you know, in the previous five to ten years, but she hadn't paid attention to them. You know, this is kind of the occasion where there's tough conversation. I was I was really angry. But, you know, as as they say, we had to fix it. We had a we had a preparer and um you know, we had to get ready for, you know, these first national interviews. So, Katie, we should step back for a second and talk not just about the position Sarah Palin was in at the time, but the position you were in at the time. Do we have to? (laughs) Frankly, it was a tough period for me. After 15 years at the Today Show, I was brought on by CBS to try to turn around the evening news, which, P.S., had been in third place for many, many years before I arrived. There was a lot of hype around my hiring, and in retrospect, I think we may have tried to change too much too quickly. But the result was, even though we brought in a younger audience and I was proud of the work we did, and by the way, the awards we won, I really couldn't dramatically improve the ratings. And because of that, I was getting some of the worst press of my life. I also think there might have been some sexism involved, but that's a whole other podcast. I I have to agree with you on that, Katie. I mean, I remember the incessant coverage of your hair and your clothes. And anyway, as you say, that's a different show at a different time. (laughs) Those were some dark days. I remember sitting at my kitchen table one night. I was so upset. I might have been crying over my pasta. And my daughter, Carrie, said, Mom, don't forget what Samantha says on Sex and the City. If I listened to what every bitch in New York said about me, I'd never leave the house. (laughs) (laughs) Good you let your 10-year-old watch that. I know. I I really shouldn't have done that, but I have to say it did make me feel better. (laughs) (laughs) And so we were really eager to get the first interview with Sarah Palin. (laughs) And Brian, as you remember, we had actually scored the third interview with her. I remember being pretty upset about that. Yeah, I remember we were all very pissed, to put it mildly. Anyway, the first interview went to Charlie Gibson of ABC News. Do you agree with the Bush doctrine? In what respect, Charlie? The second went to Sean Hannity at Fox. One of the big, big benefits of the job is you get a really big plane. My husband, he's a pilot, but uh, I would have to convince him also we can't be getting around anymore in our little Piper Super Cub. We'd be using that Air Force, It's the one that's parked outside your house. The larger-than-life Rick Kaplan, who's a real legend in the TV news business, was the executive producer of the CBS Evening News. When Gibson got his interview, then we said, oh, God, we're not first. And, and then after watching it, we, you knew and we hoped— we had room there because there was a lot of stuff that was not done right by by them. I remember feeling like this was a really important interview and the stakes couldn't have been higher. Katie, did you feel that way at the time? Definitely, Brian. I knew it would get a lot of attention and I would get a lot of attention. I really wanted to do a good job, not only for me, but also for the electorate because I wanted them to get a sense of Sarah Palin's understanding of a number of important issues, where she stood, how she would lead. And it sounds almost precious to say now, but it was a very divided country even back then, and the partisanship was so intense. I wanted to be viewed as an honest broker who asked fair questions. 
I also remember being super conscious of my facial expressions, that I would not look at her skeptically or cock my head like a dog hearing a high-pitched noise. (laughs) I wasn't going to do anything that might convey a sense of judging her or being patronizing or reacting to anything she said. So I really was intent on being completely expressionless. I remember we spent three or four days in the den of your apartment in New York. You called this place the Red Room, which felt very appropriate. Well, that's because it was painted red. (laughs) Maybe a little bit of a Red Room of Pain theme. (laughs) For you, anyway. (laughs) For me, for sure. Anyway, we were trying to read everything Palin had ever said or written. We were trying to figure out what hadn't been asked of her before. And you must have read, what, hundreds of articles, including some from Alaska newspapers? Oh, my God. I remember doing nexus searches of local Alaska articles back when she was mayor of Wasilla. My God. You're nothing if not thorough. (laughs) I remember we also tried to put you in touch with the smartest people we could find. That's right. I called a number of former top government officials, Democrats and Republicans, because I wanted to find out what they thought I should ask. And the best advice I think I got was from former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, who said, just let her talk because people don't know her and people don't know what she believes. And I thought that was very good advice. So while we were in the Red Room prepping our side of the interview, across New York City, Nicole Wallace was working with Sarah Palin. I went to brief her the night before at her hotel, and I remember walking down the street with my bag, and it was like rumbling over the cracks, and and her press aides walked out, like shaking their heads, looking shell-shocked. I said, how'd it go? They said, not good. Good luck. And they left me alone with her. And she carried around this stack of cards, like almost eight inches tall, with all these things that she was trying to memorize on them. And I said, give me the cards. And I said, let's just talk. And I tried talking her through. You know, she hadn't really answered many questions about social issues. She hadn't answered many questions about Hillary. She she'd said some sort of interesting and not fully formed things about Russia. Um, because this really was the focus of this first interview was really foreign policy right. because it was following her visit at the U.N., talking to world leaders. I mean, it was an opportunity for her to sort of clean up some of the things she'd said about Russia. And so, so I remember trying to brief her, and she was just blank. I think she was tapped out. I think she was drained. She she was on a plane, and so she was watching the coverage of herself incessantly in a loop. And it was in her head. She was rattled. And so I remember the night before trying to get her to focus on the interview. I had no luck briefing her on any of the foreign policy stuff. John, at that point, was really concerned about Putin and Russia. Um, so I think that got in her head in a weird way. She ended up saying something to you about Russia poking us in the eye or something weird. It is from Alaska that we send those out to make sure that an eye is being kept on this very powerful nation, Russia, because they are right there. They are right next to um, to our state. Uh, uh, PTSD. The evening before, she was essentially catatonic. That morning of the interview, she was throwing her clothes around the room, throwing hangers at people, scrubbing makeup off her face in a, in a state of real distress. Um, incredibly cruel, mean, vicious, personal, alleging conspiracies, attacks. Everyone is out to get her. And, and that was before the interview, right? And I said, you know, what are, what are we going to what are we going to do? You know, is she ready to do this? And kind of what's what's the choice? Right. What's the choice? 
I don't know that we should have canceled it or or not. So obviously they didn't cancel. Katie, what do you remember about the day of the first interview about meeting Sarah Palin? I think I first met her, Brian, when she was coming out of her hotel room. And she was quite beautiful, very dynamic, very warm, and seemed to be pretty relaxed. I remember she was really friendly with a number of the crew guys, and you and I could name a lot of politicians who aren't that friendly with the crew, so I remember being impressed by that. Oh, and one other thing we should mention, the first interview was supposed to be about foreign policy. But at that time, the economy was entering the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. It was a manic Monday in the financial market. Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy. Breaking news here. Stocks all around the world are tanking because of the crisis on Wall Street. So, of course, I had to ask a question about that. You've said, quote, John McCain will reform the way Wall Street does business. Other than supporting stricter regulations of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac two years ago, can you give us any more examples of his leading the charge for more oversight? I think that the example that you just cited with his warnings two years ago about Fannie and Freddie, that that's paramount. That's more than a heck of a lot of other senators and representatives did for us. But he's been in Congress for 26 years. He's been chairman of the powerful Commerce Committee, and he is almost always sided with less regulation, not more. He's also known as the maverick, though, taking shots from his own party and certainly taking shots from the other party, trying to get people to understand what he's been talking about, the need to reform government. I'm just going to ask you one more time not to belabor the point. Specific examples in his 26 years of pushing for more regulation. I'll try to find you some and I'll bring them to you. She just looks so unsure. Like if if you have bravado about your ignorance, that's one thing to the voter. But if you look as rattled by your ignorance as she made me feel about her ignorance, it, it reads as instability. And I thought that's what she displayed with you. Katie, as you watched Sarah Palin's struggle, what were you thinking about? Well, I couldn't help but feel sorry for her. Obviously, she was out of her depth when it came to a lot of important policy issues. And you'd have to have ice water running through your veins if you didn't feel some compassion for her. But then, as if I was going through the stages of grief, I got a little angry at John McCain and questioned his judgment and why he picked somebody who was clearly not ready for prime time. I'll never forget during the interview, I was sitting next to a press aide for the McCain campaign, and he was texting someone, and I was close enough that I could actually see the screen of his BlackBerry. He was texting, this is a disaster. And there was actually, Katie, a more colorful word before disaster, but I'm too much for prude to repeat it on this show. But Oh, go ahead, Brian. <laughs> let's just say it rhymes with ducking, Katie. And I went straight from the interview with you and her to McCain's hotel room. And I said, I need you to call her. And he said, why? I said, just call her and tell her she did a good job with Katie. And he said, did she? And I said, I don't think so. And he said, should I do Katie live? I go, yeah, maybe, maybe you'll knock Palin off the news. Do it. And in fact, he did. McCain canceled on David Letterman and went on the evening news to talk about his decision to temporarily suspend his campaign. And by the way, David Letterman was none too pleased about this and spent a good nine minutes railing about it on his show. But uh, he had to cancel the show because he's suspending his campaign because the economy is exploding. So the first interview ends, 
Everyone knows it was a disaster for Sarah Palin. But there was another interview scheduled. And Katie, you recently asked Steve Schmidt about their decision then to go ahead with it. Why did you agree to let her do that second interview? Well, because if you don't do the second interview and have any recovery from the from the first one, then the first one is cemented in there, right? It's just like when Rocky fought Mr. T in Rocky Three and got his ass kicked, right? Is there had to be a rematch? And the way you dealt with the first one was by winning the rematch in the second one with a competent performance. Katie, I love the Rocky Three comparison. I guess that makes you Mr. T, to whom you're often compared. I pity the fool. <laughs> so Palin gets back in the ring. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> nice. And in this round, there is perhaps the most famous exchange of all. Yeah, you know, everyone asked me about this moment. If they remember a question from the interview, it's this one. It was during a walk and talk following a rally in Ohio. We were just actually getting B-roll of the two of us. She had already done one interview, and I could tell she was getting pretty sick of me. She seemed to have such strong views. I wanted to know where they came from. So I asked her what she read. And when it comes to establishing your worldview, I was curious, what newspapers and magazines did you regularly read before you were tapped for this to stay informed and to understand the I've world. read most of them, again, with a great appreciation for the press, for the media. But like what coming, specifically? I'm curious that you... Um, all of them, any of them that um, have, have been in front of me over all these years. Um, I, have a va- I have a vast variety of sources where we get our news to. Alaska isn't a foreign country where it's kind of suggested it seems like wow, how could you keep in touch with what the rest of Washington, D.C. may be thinking and doing when you live up there in Alaska? Believe me, Alaska is like a microcosm of America. And the interesting thing is that earlier that day, we saw Sarah Palin on her campaign plane reading a print copy of the New York Times. So I think at least occasionally she read newspapers. What I still can't figure out is why didn't she just tell the truth? Watching the fallout from this interview was unlike anything I'd ever experienced in years in the business. I mean, I knew we had something big when we finished that first taping, but I couldn't imagine just how big it would become. Ultimately, the interview sparked a really serious conversation in the media and among voters about whether Sarah Palin was qualified to be vice president and whether the McCain campaign had truly done its diligence in vetting Sarah Palin. Here's Steve Schmidt again. If you're the governor of the state, my assumption was you had a aptitude or a like of reading, history, government, policy. knowledge, policy. So you believed going in, there was a certain threshold of knowledge that she had to possess as the governor of Alaska. A hundred percent. So you never said, do you know where Iraq is? Do you know what happened in Mm -hmm. Afghanistan? Nope. Do you know what a credit default swap is? No, no. Mm -mm. Do you understand the U.S. tax system? No. And and the answer is no to any of it. But, you know, I believe that she likely was somewhere in the mean of basic knowledge as someone who's been around a lot of politicians and helped prep them. Um, I I ran two Supreme Court confirmations. Was John Roberts and Sam Alito ready for those hearings on day one? Hell no. Right? But go through the process and you get there. Again, the assumption is 
that there's a baseline there. And it was a terrible assumption. And, you know, and I tend to 10 years later not make assumptions about anything now. How could you be governor of Alaska and be so ignorant on so many issues? It's why Jeffrey Dahmer eat 27 people. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I asked Frank Luntz about whether Palin was qualified, and he said being a candidate isn't all about understanding policy. I think that having a real understanding of people and their hopes and fears is as important as being smart and intellectual, and I'll give you a comparison. Jimmy Carter, I don't, I think Jimmy Carter was not a good president. And arguably, intellectually, he is one of the smartest we've had in our lifetime. But he had no real understanding, even though that's the essence that he gave off. I'm a peanut farmer. Well, no, he wasn't. And I don't believe he really understood how people, how they related and how they understood, which is why he gave so many speeches that nobody understood. But I think that that is an example of someone who did not understand the country that he wished to represent. And I do believe that Sarah Palin had a better understanding of who we were as people, even though she's from Alaska. Does she know policy? No. Does she know the details behind this stuff? I don't think so. But I think she understood and understands who we are as a country. That really depends how you define who we are as a country. I think she understood some Americans, not all Americans, namely the Republican base. And Palin was picked in large part because of fear of alienating that base, which was, of course, a preview of their growing power in our politics. She was also, painfully for the McCain campaign, a stark contrast with their country first, all about experience messaging. She was not a knowledgeable, experienced politician. Meanwhile, I think when she was tapped, Brian, there were a lot of undecided swing voters who who really hadn't figured out if they could support Barack Obama, perhaps feeling he was not experienced enough, but weren't convinced they wanted John McCain either. When Sarah Palin performed poorly during that interview, I think it not only cast her in a bad light, but it made many voters question John McCain's judgment. Before we go, I want to play one more thing Nicole Wallace told us. Sarah Palin probably should have been tweeting and talking to Fox News. I mean, it, it worked for Donald Trump eight years later. I don't really think Sarah Palin could have avoided network news anchors in 2008. In fact, it almost seems quaint to think that campaign managers 10 years ago really thought it was imperative for candidates to be interviewed by a network news anchor to be challenged. But today, not so much, Brian. Yeah, today, why subject yourself to challenging questions and potentially a bad performance when you could just go to a friendly outlet or not go to any outlet at all, just communicate directly to your supporters? So clearly, we have entered a world where tough interviews might not matter or might not even happen at all. Does this mean I'm not needed, Brian? <laughs> well, you're definitely needed next week, Katie, for part two of our special documentary. That's right. When Sarah goes rogue, McCain heads south, and Donald Trump picks up the pieces. A big thank you to our producers, Stephen Valentino and the Right Reverend John Delore. And thank you, of course, to our whole team at Stitcher. That's Gianna Palmer, Nora Ritchie, Jared O'Connell, 
Chris Bannon, many, many others. Thanks also to Invisible Studios and the Earwolf Studios in L.A. and Script Studios in D.C. They all helped out with recordings for this episode. And finally, thanks to Beth DeMoz, my phenomenal assistant, who also keeps me fed, very important, and Julia Lewis, who handles all things social media for me. Mark Phillips wrote our theme music. Katie Couric and I are the show's executive producers. You'll find Katie all over social media if you search Katie Couric, especially Instagram, and I tweet from at GoldsmithB. We'll be back next week for the second and final episode. Talk to you then, and thanks so much for listening. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 